Shalom, I'm Rabbi Scott. Welcome to the ministry of Beth Yeshua Messianic Synagogue in Fort Myers, Florida. We hope and pray that this teaching will be a blessing to you. If you would like to support our ministry, please go to our website, www.bethyeshuafla.com to donate online, or we can accept your donation over text. Please text the word GIVE to the number 239-747-7526. Thank you for your support. Blessings and Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Good morning. It's, it's, it's wonderful to be back uh, with you in this capacity, at least, leading worship and, and, and speaking to you. Um, I Once again, thank you to everyone who stepped in uh, while we were out for a couple weeks. Uh, Jerry spoke last week, and uh, previous to that, Rabbi Jim, for a couple weeks. And so, again, thank you all for, uh, for jumping in while we were out, and everything uh, is still ticking along the way, the way that it does. So no, nothing crashed. So uh, everybody did wonderfully. All right. Uh, if you recall, I don't know, about four weeks now, we began talking about the Bechor. Bechor is this uh, Hebrew word for firstborn, Bechor or Bechorah, uh, depending on the, uh, the, the, the gender and the, the language and the grammar. Um, the Bechor is, is the firstborn, and, and we would think of this as the firstborn son that is the, the, the child of a parent. Uh, however, what we find immediately in the, in the scriptures is that um, the, the Bechor is not necessarily just the firstborn. In fact, there are, um, in some cases, there are three Bechor, or Bechorim, if you would say, and that is the uh, financial Bechor, the one who inherits all the property of the father, and then there is the political Bechor, the one who is the most influential, and then, of course, the spiritual Bechor, who is the one who leads the family in, in, in spirituality, if you will. And we see this exemplified uh, in various places in the text, and of course we see it exemplified in the children of Jacob. Uh, and, and, and so there's, that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is, is, is just this idea that the Bechor is, is one person of each generation, of each group of children, who steps up to assume the legacy, to assume the inheritance of the parents or of the father. All right, so uh, this is important to us, and I'll show you why in about 45 minutes. So um, we're going to walk through this. Now, uh, many of you have heard me speak on the Bechor, either by references over the past three years or have heard me give this teaching, and I believe the last time I did this teaching was a couple years. There's a phenomenon in our congregation that uh, many of you have joined us since, say, COVID in the last, say, six months to a year, and so you haven't heard this teaching before. And we've actually had this phenomenon where we've had, we had the first generation of, of kind of COVID transplants into our community. And then, and then some of those have taken the revolving door. And, and now we have another second generation of, of, of uh, sort of uh, COVID refu refugees in our community, um, both here uh, and, and online. And so um, I'm, I'm confident that there's many people listening who have never heard this before. But what we find with the Word of God is, is yeah, we've, we've read it before, we've heard it taught before, but sometimes the Spirit will illuminate it and, and bring something new as we go through it. So we're, we're looking forward to that. So if you've heard this before, sit back and enjoy it. If this is the first time you've ever heard this, then um, it, there, there's a lot here. So you, uh, unfortunately, I'm going to require that you uh, pay attention 
um, just because of the, the nature of the, the, the text. Uh, we're going to be covering a lot of ground. I, uh, it was 18 pages when I started. I, I deleted many pages, so I think I'm down to 11, so there you go. Uh, which is just an example of how much there is on this topic and, and how to whittle this down is a, is a real challenge. And Perhaps I could have made it another week or two, but I, I, did, I didn't really want to drag this out much longer. Okay, so uh, who, who is the Bihar? That, that, that's what we're talking about. And this is all in the context of the story of Joseph and the story of Judah and, and this kind of thing, uh, going back a couple, uh, three or four weeks in, in our Torah Parsha. Uh, so Joseph, in, in one sense, Joseph actually did quite well in Egypt. He rose to number two in Potiphar's house. Um, he had a position of prominence. Granted, he was, uh, he was betrayed, and, and, uh, and he lost that position, went into prison. But for somebody who's been thrown in prison for any reason whatsoever, he did quite well. He managed to rise to the number two position in the whole prison, in the whole dungeon, and uh, was effectively in charge. So while he's in prison, it's, it's not a terrible situation. It could have been worse. And then, of course, we, we know that he was drawn out of the pit, and he was placed into... Uh, service of Pharaoh, and he was number two viceroy in all of Egypt. So in one sense, uh, you could say that Joseph actually did well in Egypt. Um, but when you read the account of Joseph, there are two glaring questions that jump out at you as you read it, two, two great questions. The first question, why did Joseph never write home? Why did Joseph never send a messenger? Why did Joseph never send a postcard? Why did Joseph never send a note to his dad saying, Dear old dad, I know you love me, and I know you haven't forgotten about me. I hear you're still alive. Uh, I'm doing well. Give me a couple years to sort out Egypt, and I'll have you guys come down and visit. Why did Joseph never send a postcard? Um, or, 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 or this sort of line, Dear dad, it's okay, I'm not dead. Guess what? You don't have to go down to hell. Because remember, when, 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 Joseph, when Jacob found out that his son was dead, it says he would go down into the grave in mourning. Um, why did Joseph never write? Second question, why did Joseph deceive his brothers? Why didn't he just come out and come forward and say, okay, glad to see you. We've got some unfinished business. Let's work this out. Let me be honest with you. Why did Joseph deceive his brothers? Why did he not reveal himself? Why did he deceive with the cup? He framed Benjamin, remember. He framed Benjamin. He returned the money to their sacks and so on and so forth. Why was he willing to detain Simeon for a year for a crime that he didn't commit? And Joseph knew this. Yeah, according to the law, according to the Torah, what Joseph did was sin. In one sense, you have to conclude that what Joseph did was wrong. And yet we seem to see a powerful man of God, at least used by God in powerful ways. So, so what happened here that Joseph was willing to do this? Why did he frame Benjamin? Why would he do that? Okay, so we've got these great questions. But I have a suggestion for you that these questions are actually hinting at a greater theme and understanding in the text. So we're going to try to unpack that a little bit today. Uh, backing up, uh, so what happens is Joseph is sold off into slavery, and Judah and the brothers approach Jacob with the coat, the striped coat that, uh, that uh, Jacob had given to Joseph, and they have dipped it in blood, and they've presented it to Jacob, and they say, do you recognize this coat? And of course, Jacob says, yes, it's the coat of my son. My son must have been eaten by a wild animal. He must be dead. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and then it says that all the family 
rose up to comfort Jacob, and Jacob refused to be comforted. And the next line we have on your screens, Bereshit, Genesis chapter 38, verse 1, and it says this, that, jo that uh, Judah went down from among his brothers. At that time, Judah went down from his brothers. And this is one of the better translations that renders this, I think, accurately. And, and what it refers to as Judah being somehow up and then somehow stepping down. He was stepping down from prominence. He was stepping down from leadership. He was stepping down from his role. And the following chapter, chapter 31 of Genesis, uh, is the uh, episode of, Joseph, or of Judah and his three sons and his wife and then, of course, his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And that's the balance of chapter 38. And we, we go through all of chapter 38 until we return to the story of Joseph. But we have this, this thing where this refers to the time when their father is mourning Joseph, the family rose up to comfort him, and we have this, this Hebrew word, vayered, uh, he went down, he went down. This same word is used in the Torah multiple times to refer to those who go down to Egypt, like in the case of Abraham and others. So we have Judah who went down, and who else went down? <clears throat> Who else goes down from among the brothers? Or who else goes, steps down from a position of prominence, from a position of authority, a position of, of significance? Who else goes down? Judah steps down. Also, Joseph goes down. Joseph goes down to Egypt as a slave. Judah steps down from among his brothers. Okay, so the parallel is set. Do you see that? The Torah is setting up a parallel. Consider Joseph and Judah. All right. Um, so we have Joseph going down from among his brothers. He goes down to Egypt. Without a doubt, the story of Joseph is incredible. He's one of the rock stars of the Tanakh. There's no question. He rises to incredible significance. He is faithful. He is enduring. And he is blessed beyond all expectations and, uh, and, uh, and comprehensions. We had dinner with friends last night and uh, was sharing life stories and, and things like this. And, and um, you know, some of us have real stories. Some of us have real traumas and tragedies in our life stories. And we were talking about how all of us would not have traded anything in our lives. We would not have traded any of the trauma, any of the tragedy, because it has contributed to where we are and who we are. It has become us. And so, and, and in a sense, that's what the challenge is, is that your identity is shaped by suffering and by difficulty. And it is through that suffering and difficulty that you answer the two great questions, right? We talk about the two great questions here. Is God good and is God in control? Every person must answer those questions for yourself. And your suffering and your trial becomes the answer to those two questions. Your life's experience in suffering and trials and difficulties, hardships and pains become the answer to those two questions, or at least contribute to the answer to those two questions, and they become part of the fabric of your faith, because that is your faith. What do you feel about Adonai? Is, is he good and is he in control? Okay, so Joseph, on the one hand, had a life of great sorrow and difficulty. In fact, at the birth of his first son, he says, Adonai has given to me to forget all of my troubles of my father's house. Yes, Joseph had a difficult life, but in a sense, he was also blessed beyond measure. And I think that most of us would not trade the blessings for the difficulties or for the sufferings. 
that we would be willing to go through the sufferings in exchange for the blessings that Adonai has reserved for us. Okay. So Joseph's story is really quite incredible, that he rises to the position that he rises to. He becomes the Messiah to the known world at that time. And, and you've heard me say this phrase before. What it is is that Joseph becomes the Savior. He becomes the Messiah to the entire known world. Egypt was a breadbasket of the world at that time, especially with the seven years of abundance and plenty that Adonai presented to Egypt in order to, present, to, to prepare them to be a, 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 a salvation to the world through the years of famine, for the years of famine were very great. Um, and so he becomes a Mashiach. He becomes a type of a Mashiach, a literal Mashiach, a literal Messiah to the known world at that time. All right, so we return to these two questions. Why didn't he write home, and, and why did Joseph deceive the brothers when they showed up to, uh, to buy grain? All right, um, let's walk through the narrative here. Uh, Genesis, Bereshit, chapter 42, please, uh, verse 1. Now, Yaakov saw that there was grain in Egypt, so Yaakov said to his sons, why are you staring at each other? Look, he said, I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from there so that we can stay alive and not die. Why are you looking at each other? He says to the brothers, why, why are you just staring at each other? In other words, why aren't you doing something? Somebody needs to do something. A uh, little bit of finger pointing going on in the family at this time. Look, he says, I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some grain for us so that we will live and not die. I don't believe this is too much of an exaggeration because it says the famine was very grave. Uh, next frame, one through four. Is that it? Um, it says here... Um, um, it says here that the, thus the, the ten brothers went to buy grain from Egypt except Benjamin. And Benjamin didn't go. Benjamin was withheld. It was that Jacob was afraid something might happen. Uh, it says here, Jacob did not send him with his brothers because he was afraid something might happen to him. Um, this is similar to what was happening in, the, in chapter 38 with the, the narrative of Judah and Tamar. Uh, Judah did not want to give his son to his last remaining son to his uh, daughter-in-law because he was afraid something was going to happen to him. Um, and, and indeed, that's what we have here. Jacob is afraid something's going to happen to, uh, to, to, uh, to Benjamin. All right, uh, verse 10, uh, so the brothers came to Joseph to buy grain from Egypt. Uh, moving on to chapter 42, verse 7. Uh, so Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he made himself unrecognizable to them. Then he spoke harshly, and he said to them, Where are you from? Where have you come from? From the land of Canaan, they said, to buy grain as food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. So what we have here is this... Hebrew word, which is the same root, hakerna, uh, means to acknowledge or to recognize. What do you see? Do you recognize? Um, it is the same word that was when uh, Isaac did not recognize Jacob because Jacob was in costume pretending to be Esau. It's the same word that Tamar says to Judah, 
when she presents to him the signet, the staff, and the outer garment, she says, "This, who do these belong to? Do you recognize? It's the same word that is used when the brothers present the bloody uh, coat to Jacob. Hakerna, do you recognize this? So we have this. And, and, and once again, we have another example of a deception. Jake, uh, Joseph is going to deceive the brothers. First, Joseph accuses them of being spies, and he places them in prison for three days. Um, then he releases them all from prison, but he detains Simeon as a hostage in order to get them to bring back Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother, by his mother Rachel. Um, in, so, so Joseph is accusing the brothers of being spies. They're not really spies, but he's accusing them of being spies in order to get the upper hand. But look what it is. Uh, where do we first meet Joseph? When do we first hear about Joseph? The first narrative we have of Joseph is when he's bringing back a bad report about his brothers. What is he being to his brothers? He's being a spy. He's spying on his brothers. That's the first time we see Joseph. And Joseph accuses his brothers, you are spies. And what's Joseph doing? He's getting them to reset, to think back. He's, he's using words that might trigger something in them or even a scenario that might trigger something in them. So Simeon is, is detained in Egypt the same way that Joseph was detained in Egypt. All right. Um, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do what I say and stay alive. Do you have uh, Genesis 42 verse 18? Uh, Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and you will live, for I fear God. Uh, if you are honest, let one of your brothers remain as a prisoner in the guardhouse where you've been, while you go and bring grain for the hunger in your homes. Um, and then he says this, and your youngest brother, bring me, bring to me, so that your words can be verified and you won't die. And so this is what they did. They agreed to bring back the younger brother, which is Benjamin. Remember, Benjamin uh, is, is, is not going to uh, be let go by Jacob. Uh, they made their way back to their father in Canaan, and they reported everything to their father, and sure enough, Jacob is distraught, um, which I, I have to say I, I found a little perplexing that Jacob would be distraught at the idea of letting Benjamin go. But, but right now, the lens we're looking at for this is the lens of the Bechor, the firstborn. So this is what I think is happening. We, we, we read the passage and we say, okay, we've got Rachel who's the favored wife of Jacob, and we've got the firstborn of Rachel, which would be the firstborn favored son. We would think that that figures prominently as the Bechor, as the firstborn. And so that would be Joseph. And we've watched Joseph with his dreams, and we're thinking, okay, yeah, this is what the Bechor looks like. And then we watch him get sold down into Egypt, and we're thinking, okay, there's something wrong here. He's not going to be the Bechor because he's sold into slavery in Egypt. But then he rises to prominence in Egypt and finally becomes viceroy, second in command, in order to be the Mashiach of the known world at that time. And we say, oh, look, do you see? He's going to be the Bechor after all. He took a long tour, a long detour, and now he's going to ultimately be the Bechor. He's going to ultimately be the firstborn. He's going to ultimately lead this family of 12 brothers into the, the fullness of what God has. All right. 
So this is probably one way that, that, that you could automatically interpret the text. Let's walk through this because Reuben has also demonstrated multiple times that he wants to be the leader of the family. We see this in a number of places. Um, but the problem with Reuben is that he went into his father's bed and had relations with Rachel's maid, Bilhah. And this is the firstborn favored wife. So Reuben uh, did something, uh, first of all, just uh, reprehensible, but, but also as a power move against the father who had a favored wife. He, he goes into the maid of the favored wife, the concubine of the favored wife. So this completely disqualifies Reuben as a possible Bechor. Shimon uh, and, and Levi would be the next. Shimon is the next born and then Levi. But the problem with Shimon and Levi is they went into the town and massacred everyone after the rape of their sister Dina. And so Shimon and Levi uh, are, are, are considered less ideal because of that. Um, and, and, and perhaps Shimon might be forgiven this slight and is viewed as a possible heir apparent. But then after Shimon and Levi, the next one you have in line is Judah. Remember that Judah has been disqualified from his position as the Bechor because he went down from among his brothers. When he presented to the father, when, when he and the, the, the brothers and the, the sisters and the whole family gathered to comfort the father, and the father, Jacob, rejected him and refused to be comforted, then we had this, this plan failure, and our family has remained dysfunctional. In fact, in fact, now it's probably worse off because our dad is in deep depression and nothing's going to get fixed. And Judah goes down from among his brothers. He walks away from that. All right. So in light of all these things, who does Joseph take hostage? He takes Simeon hostage. Because of those four, you might be inclined to think that Simeon is the one that has the possibility of being the Bechor. And so Joseph takes him hostage in order to set the stage for a scenario of a sacrificial substitutionary. Do you see what's happening? In other words, I'll stand in, I'll go into prison for you in order that you all be blessed. Okay, let's continue on. Uh, Genesis, Bittashit, chapter 42, uh, verse 36, if you would please. Uh, Jacob, their father, said to me, you have robbed me of my children. Um, he said, uh, let's see, you got 38. Um, do you have a 36, verse 36? There we go. Reuben spoke to his father saying, oh, okay, now you're in 37. How about 36? Nope. There we go. Then their father Jacob said to them, you have made me childless. Joseph is no more. Now Simeon is gone. Next you'll take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Now, that just sounds like hyperbole and overdramatic uh, kind of stuff. Uh, extreme exaggeration. All right. Excuse me. Reuben spoke to his father saying, you can put my two sons to death if I don't bring... Uh, let's go back to... Th okay, 37. Reuben spoke to his father saying, you can put my two sons to death if I don't bring them back to you. Put them in my hand, that is Benjamin and I will return him to you. So what Reuben is proposing is he goes down into Egypt, he takes uh, responsibility for Benjamin, and they all go down into Egypt to buy more grain. Um, and, and Reuben says to this, you can put my two sons to death if I don't bring him back to you. Now remember, I didn't get into it because it was one of the things I cut out this morning. Um, but 
in this narrative of Tamar, what happens with the three sons of Judah? The first two sons die, and he's left with the third. That becomes the conflict. And here, Reuben is saying, you can take my first two sons. You can take my two sons. Do you see the parallels that are setting up? And all this is in the context of trying to filter out who's going to step up, who's going to be the Bechor. Uh, will the real Bechor please stand up? Okay, um, notice here that Reuben is still trying to step up. Uh, what is Jacob's response? Next verse, please. 38 says this. He said, my son will not go down with you for his brother is dead and he alone remains. If harm should happen to him along the way you're going, you'll bring my gray hair down to Sheol in grief. What is that reference? Uh, back one frame, please. Go back. Uh, if something should happen to him along the way you're going, what is that a reference to? It's a reference to when they were shepherding, they were headed that way. They were down in the, in the desert and, and, and on the way to Egypt when something happened to Joseph. So uh, it's, Jacob is alluding to what happened before, which gives you the question, does Jacob have a sense or a suspicion of what actually happened? All right, uh, continuing on. In any case, Jacob refuses to be re reasonable. At the end of the day, Shimon is left to rot in prison for a year. Hunger is a powerful motivator. Uh, continuing on, Genesis, Bedeshit, chapter 43, verse 1. The famine was severe in the land, so when they had eaten up the grain which they brought out of Egypt, the father said to them, go again and buy us a little food. So now Jacob is starting to get reasonable. We know some time has passed. And this time it is not Simeon, or it is not Reuben who lays out a plan. It is Judah who lays out a plan. Uh, chapter 43, verse 3. Um, do you have a 3? Judah said to him, the man warned us firmly. The man is, of course, Joseph. Uh, the man warned us firmly, saying, you won't see my face unless your brother is with you. Uh, if you send our brother with us, that is Benjamin, we will go down and buy grain for you for food. Next frame. But if you won't send him, we won't go down, because the man said, you won't see my face unless your brother is with you. It is unequivocal. We must bring Benjamin. Uh, skip ahead to verse 8, please. Chapter 43, verse 8. Judah said to his father Israel, Please send the boy with me. We'll get up and go so that we'll live and not die. We, you, and our children. We're all in this together. The famine is very severe. We need food. I myself will be his pledge. What is it that Judah is saying here? I will stand in for him. I will be his guarantee. I will be his security. You can demand him back from my own hand. If I don't bring him back to you and place him before you, then you can blame me all my days. So Judah is trying to, uh, to um, convince and persuade Jacob to let Judah take Benjamin and assume all uh, responsibility for him. So this is agreed upon. Um, they travel back to Egypt with more money to replace the money that had been uh, returned in their packs the previous trip. As well as this time they bring Benjamin. Upon seeing Benjamin, Joseph is overcome. Remember, this is his only brother by his mother who died uh, in childbirth with Benjamin. He has a huge banquet prepared for them. And then after the big meal, it's time for some more deception. So it wasn't enough that... Joseph deceived the brothers and manipulated them into bringing back Benjamin. Joseph has round two. And so we have to ask the question, if, if, if Benjamin was what we wanted, if that was what Joseph wanted, if Joseph wanted his baby brother, why the ongoing deception? 
Okay. Um, Joseph has, once again, more money returned to them. All their money's returned to them. But then, more importantly, he has his personal silver cup placed in Benjamin's sack. He let them get a little ways out of the city. Then they're, per- they're pursued and chased. And we have this. Uh, Joseph's servants confronted the brothers, searched the packs, and find the silver goblet in uh, Benjamin's sack. So all the brothers are returned to Joseph, and Joseph decrees that he will not put Benjamin to death, but rather Benjamin shall be a slave to Joseph in his house. The rest of you all go home. It's almost as if Joseph knows something. It's almost as if he knows what it took to get Benjamin here and what it's going to mean to send the brothers back. Do you see that Joseph is setting up this scenario to bring everything out to light, to bring everything into the light? Verse four, and, and it talks about that here. The brothers are asking the question, this person knows all of our sin, uh, meaning uh, knows what we did to Joseph. Okay, um, verse four, uh, chapter 44, verse 18 uh, says this. Uh, do you have a verse 18 of chapter 44? No. Uh, Judah approached him, that is Joseph, and said, I beg your pardon, my Lord, please let your servant say a word in my Lord's ears. In other words, let's go talk in private. Judah steps up and says to Joseph, let's you and I go talk in private. We're going to go over here and and I want to discuss this with you. Please don't be angry with your servant. Next frame. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you yourselves know that my wife bore me two sons. Judah's going to have a private word with Joseph. Why would Judah want to have this private word? There's three possibilities that, that, that jump to mind to the top of the list. The first is that Judah's going to misrepresent things, and he doesn't want the brothers to mess it up. Judah's going to tell a story, and maybe this story is going to have some embellishment or some inaccuracies, and Judah doesn't want the other brothers to hear. Or maybe Judah's confident that he can fix this. He's afraid the other brothers are going to mess it up. Like, I can work this out. Let's you and I go over here and we'll work this out. I'm afraid these brothers are going to, going to get and foul up the mess. Or the third one, Judah's going to take responsibility and doesn't want them to step in. Judah's going to assume responsibility for this situation and doesn't want Reuben or somebody else to try to win the day. The third option, or that's three, there's the fourth option, and of course there's probably others that I haven't thought of, why Judah wanted to speak privately to Joseph. And the fourth option in my mind is that they're peers. They're peers in the discussion of the Bechor. See, we've been talking about who is the Bechor, who is going to be the one who rises to the top of this, these 12 brothers. And we look at Judah and we look at Joseph at this stage of the story. And we say, okay, these are the two most prominent ones. And they're going to go talk as peers. They're going to go talk as equals. Now, bear in mind, what we have in the back of this whole narrative is that Joseph could pull rank. First of all, second in charge of all of Egypt, his father's favorite son. I'm glad you brought Benjamin. Let me just open up all my cards. I'm in charge of the family now, and you can all just bow down and we'll get on with our way. Remember the dream from when I was a child? Done. Let's move on. Why didn't Joseph pull rank? Why didn't he step up and assume the bechor? There's something missing. There's something happening in the background of all this. Okay. Um, So 
so, uh, so Judah is, is going to have a discussion with, with, um, with, uh, with who he doesn't know who this is, um, but it's, it's actually Joseph. And uh, go back to verse uh, 27. Uh, Genesis chapter 44, verse 27. Your servant, my father, said to us, you yourselves know that my wife bore me two sons. This is Judah telling the story to Joseph as if Joseph doesn't know any of this. But look what Judah is saying. My, my wife bore me two sons. That's not an accurate story. That's not what happened. Jacob didn't have two sons. He had 12 and other daughters, among which is Judah. But the two sons that he's referring to here is, uh, is Joseph and uh, Benjamin. Uh, next frame, you have a 28. One went out for me, so I said, he must have been torn to shreds, and I haven't seen him since. That's quoting Jacob, uh, that Jacob said he must have been torn to shreds uh, at the loss of Joseph. Verse 29, if you also take this one away from before me, and an accident happens to him, that is, if you take this Benjamin down to Egypt, and an accident happens to him, then you'll bring my gray hair down to the evil of Sheol. In other words, I will go to my grave. Next ring. Now, if I come to your servant, my father, and the boy isn't with us, since his life is bound to his life. It says this, I go, and, and if the boy isn't with us, seeing how his heart is bound up with the boy's heart, when he sees that the boy isn't with us, he will die. So we have this Hebrew phrase. Go to the next frame, if you would, please. Is this the Hebrew frame? In, in, in the Hebrew, v'nafsho kashura v'nafsho, soul bound to soul. Nefesh is the word for soul. We see that over and over again in the text. Uh, the soul is bound to soul, or soul is knit to soul. Soul is knit together. Judah is saying that Jacob's soul, his heart, is bound up in his son Benjamin's soul, his heart. Continuing on, verse 33, Judah says to Joseph, Therefore I beg you, let your servant stay as a slave to my Lord instead of the boy. In other words, let me stay as a servant instead of the boy. And let the boy go up with his brothers. In other words, let the other brothers go up. For how can I go up to my father? Next frame. 34. For how can I go up to my father and the boy is not with me? Else I must see the evil that would come upon my father. Um, in another translation, I couldn't bear to see my father so overwhelmed with grief. Notice that Judah has made a reference to Jacob and Benjamin's souls being tied, knit together. But look what he does. Judah sacrifices himself in the place of Benjamin. Now, especially here, notice that as far as Judah is concerned, Benjamin probably took the cup, right? It, it, Judah has no reason to think either way. We don't get a glimpse into that part of the narrative. But there has to be a possibility that Benji thought he could get away with taking the, the, the big man's cup. I mean, that's a possibility here. Judah's willing to step in, not for an injustice, but he's willing to step in and be a sacrifice for what may have been a, a real theft. By all rights, the man, that is Joseph, the man of Pharaoh, the man had the right to keep Benjamin. And Judah is saying, take me instead because his soul is bound to my father's soul. Jacob and Benjamin's hearts are woven. They're tied to each other. They're bound to each other. But Judah has bound himself up first with Jacob, 
by being compassionate, by understanding that Jacob lost his first love, his first wife. Judah has understanding for Jacob's heart and understanding for Jacob's sorrow at the loss of Rachel and understanding, compassionate, for Jacob's fear at losing Benjamin. And so by all this, Judah has now bound himself to Benjamin by becoming the, the substitution, by sacrificing his own life in place of Benjamin. And it's at that moment that Joseph reveals himself to the brothers. It's that moment when the deception is over. Okay. Why does this matter to us? One way to read this is that Judah is the intended Bechor all along. He's the one that Adonai had chosen to be the Bechor. Judah is the plan of Adonai, the root of Jesse. Judah is the lion. Uh, the Mashiach ben David comes from uh, the line of the tribe of Judah, Yeshua. Uh, the seed where Yeshua comes from. So in that sense, we might easily conclude that Judah was the intended before all along. But we ask the question, why did Joseph not write home? Why did Joseph deceive the brothers? I believe that it is because Joseph knew somehow that Judah was to be the firstborn. The dream of the sheaves, your sheaves bowing down to my sheaves, the dream of the stars, the sun and the moon, the 11 stars. I believe that Joseph figured out there was another layer to these dreams. That the dreams applied to Joseph in one sense because all the known world was coming to Joseph to bow down to him in Egypt. But in another sense, they did not belong to Joseph. The intended purpose of those dreams was the seed, which is Yeshua, which was prophesied all the way back in, in, in the beginning. The seed was to be the foretold one, the one who was to become from the seed of Judah. So Joseph sets up a scenario by which Judah had to step up and become the Behor, to step up and bind his life to Benjamin. Remember the phrase, venafsho, keshura venafsho? It's found together in another place, in 1 Samuel, of all places. If you would, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18 says this. Do you have a 1 Samuel chapter 18 up there? It came to pass when David had finished speaking. This is after the assault uh, or after the death of Goliath. Um, and, and Saul has adopted David and brought him into his court. And it came to pass when David had finished speaking to Saul, Jonathan's soul was knit to David's soul. And Jonathan loved him as himself. Uh, next frame, verse 2, Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Next frame, verse 3, um, then Jonathan cut a covenant with David because he loved him as himself or loved him as his own soul. But again, in this verse 1, we've got this soul knit with soul. Benafesh yanotan nekeshurah, benafesh david. Uh, do you have the Hebrew frame? Next frame. Okay, so this is in the, 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 some of the Hebrew words. It is this venafesh yanotan. I think it's out of, out of order. It's not formatting rightly on our screen for some reason. Venafesh yanotan nekishra benafesh David. Jonathan's soul was knit together with David's. Why is this significant? Because Jonathan was of the tribe of Benjamin and David was the tribe of Judah. And Jonathan had a claim on the throne. Remember, Saul's going to lose the throne. 
But Jonathan was a good boy. Jonathan was a good kid. He had every right to want to take the throne. He had every right to assume the throne. And he was willing to set aside his claim for David. Judah gave up his grievance against Jacob and knit his soul to Benjamin as a sacrifice, as a substitution. Likewise, Jonathan of the tribe of Benjamin gave up his grievance, that of losing the opportunity for the crown, for the throne, gave up his grievance and knit his soul to David of the tribe of Judah. Judah bound himself to Benjamin, and then later Jonathan binds himself to David. Or Judah bound himself to Benjamin, and then later the tribe of Benjamin, through Jonathan, binds themselves to the tribe of Judah. Do you see that flip, that switch? The northern kingdom of Israel was called Israel. Southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel was called Israel. It consisted of the ten tribes. The southern kingdom, called Judah, consisted of Judah and Benjamin together. Still bound to each other. But why is this relevant or important to us? What is the point of all this? Let me explain how I see this. Joseph is certainly a type of the Messiah. He went down from among his brothers. He became the savior of the known world. He served as a kind of Bechor, but it was temporarily. Later, when his brothers returned to him, when one of his brothers stepped up to become the Bechor, Joseph stepped aside. The same way Jonathan stepped aside for David. Do you see that? The psychology of the firstborn in a family, we see this in our family. If you've got a good-sized family, this is what you see. The, the, the psychology of the firstborn in a family is to transmit the values, the ethics, the morals of the parents to the younger children. This is what the eldest does. This is what the elder children do. They teach the younger children how to be a, a, a Fingerson or a Rutherford or, a, or anybody. They, they teach how the younger children how to live to model it, how it's done, how we eat, how we do laundry, how we ask for things. Children are always learning from each other. What are the unspoken rules of our family, the unwritten laws of how we move and, and govern ourselves? If you look at the greater kingdom of God, both Gentile believers and Jewish believers, sincere, genuine, bona fide kingdom, not the institutionalized church and, and, and so forth, but the real kingdom of Adonai, the evangelical church, the Christian church, the Gentile Christian church has done an incredible job of advancing the good news, the Bessarah, the gospel around the world. Starting in the Reformation and a little bit there prior to that with the Moravians and some of these others. At that point, two things became uh, very important priorities in, in the Gentile quote-unquote church of that time. And the first thing that became a priority was putting the, the, the Bible translations into the language of whatever common people could read it. So the Bibles were translated at that point into common languages. And the other thing that was very important was taking the gospel to the world. The gospel of Jesus, the gospel of salvation in Jesus, that became the priority of the evangelical Gentile church after the Reformation and, and a little bit prior to that. They became the, custo the custodians, if you will, of the gospel. Prior to that, the gospel of salvation 
was lost in the corruption of evangelical Gentile Christianity. And of course, in Judaism, it was lost because they rejected Yeshua the Messiah for the most part, except for a few pockets here and there. Okay, so when the Gentile church assumed that role and assumed for themselves the burden and the responsibility of becoming the custodians of the gospel of salvation, they became a type of Mashiach to the known world. In other words, they brought the gospel to the known world. We have to acknowledge that. We have to acknowledge what the Gentile church did for the entire world. They brought the gospel to the entire world. In America, nearly everybody knows a little bit about Jesus because of that. Maybe our younger generations quite a bit less so, but certainly the older generations, everybody kind of knows who Jesus is. Right? So what's happening here is that the, the, the Gentile church has done a great job of bringing the gospel to the known world in the same way that Joseph did a great job of saving the world through bread, saving the world through food, because they needed food, right? But what needs to happen? The Gentile church is not the firstborn. The Gentile church is not the Bechor. The elder brother in the nations of the kingdom of God is Judah, is the Jews. Do you see that? And in the same way that Joseph stepped aside when Judah stood up, the Gentile church has a decision to make in this day and age. Romans chapter 11, verse 17, if you would, please. Uh, what do you have there, Romans chapter 11? If some of the branches are broken off, and you being a wild olive. Now what he's referring to there is he's referring to Judah, the Jews, Israel, and the wild olive, of course, is the Gentiles. If you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became a partaker of the root of the olive tree with its richness, some people interpret this to be Yeshua, but it doesn't really work to be just Yeshua. It isn't just Yeshua. It is a partaker of the root, and its goodness is the blessings of Israel that they have in, in store for, for all the people. Um, did, where did we end up there? 17, 18. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. If you've been grafted in, you're not grafted in and boasting because you're an individual root. You're grafted into the root. The root is what supports you. You do not support the root. This is a, a comment about the wild olive branch that is grafted in. What is the wild olive branch that is grafted in? It is the Gentile believer in Yeshua. Next frame, please. Verse 19, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. You might say that. Next frame. True enough, they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. But do not be anger, or do not be arrogant, sorry, but fear. Next frame, 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. In other words, don't be arrogant. They were broken off for their unbelief. What is their unbelief? Their not, unbelief is not in God. Their unbelief is in Yeshua. The only reason that they were broken off is because their disbelief, their active disbelief in Yeshua. The only reason you were grafted in is because of your belief in Yeshua. You're grafted into the root because of this. Notice then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who fell, but God's kindness towards you. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Uh, 23, please. They also, if they do not continue 
in their unbelief will be grafted in, where God is able to graft them in again. The branches that were broken off are able to be grafted in again. Next frame. For you were cut out of that which by nature is a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. In other words, your background is outside the covenant. Your background is outside the root. Your background is outside the blessings that God had in mind for all the nations through Israel. That's your background. So you are cut out of that which by nature is a wild olive tree and you are grafted in as a faithful believing branch in contrary to nature. In other words, you were taken out of what your natural state was and, and you were grafted into this cultivated olive tree. How much more will those natural branches be grafted into their own tree? How much more will the Jews who believe be put back into their own tree? Verse 24, is that as far as we took it? So here's the conclusion of, of, of this passage in Romans, at least one of the conclusions. The obvious thing is that the Gentile is not in a position of prominence. The Gentile, is not a, the Gentile believer is not in a position of self-sufficiency. Their belief in Yeshua grafts them into the root, which is Judah going down to the line of the tribe of Judah, which is Yeshua. All right. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Joseph was sent out from among his brothers, sent to the Gentiles to become a Mashiach, a savior to the known world. What he did to save the world was he brought bread. Yeshua is called the bread of life. Later, when Judah came down and demonstrated that he had learned that he was ready to step up and become the Bechor by virtue of his sacrifice and binding his soul, Joseph steps aside and Judah takes his place. Joseph served as Mashiach to the world, but the real seed of David, the real Mashiach, would come through Judah. The Gentile community of believers, the Gentile greater body of Messiah, has been diligent to spread the gospel message around the world, the Bessarah. The basic message of Yeshua has been spread to nearly every people group around the world. The Gentiles have done this. We have to acknowledge this. We have to give credit for this. Adonai saw fit for them to be custodians of his salvation, custodians of Yeshua, and for the most part, they have been faithful to this. But the Gentiles are not the Bechor. I'm sorry, they're just not. We see that in Romans 11. The Jews, understand, have been given the knowledge of Adonai to communicate to the nations. They've been given the heritage the understanding, the covenant, to communicate to the nations. They were always supposed to be a light on the hill. Yeshua wasn't speaking to Gentile Christians when he gave his Sermon on the Mount. He was speaking to a Jewish audience. These are Jewish metaphors. This is a Jewish teaching. You are to be a light on the hill. You are not to be covered in a basket. The Gentile community of believers have been excellent custodians of this salvation for the most part but the Jews, the Israel Israel is the Bechor the Jew as an elder brother in the nations of the kingdom of God have the role of communicating and leading and teaching those that are under the elder brother both natural and adopted and this is the nature of a family if you adopt a child in then that child learns from the elder brother the values, the ethics, the practices of the Father. The Gentiles have been diligent and faithful with the gospel. But that's all they know naturally. And look at the gospel. Look at the, the salvation gospel message that you hear in the Gentile church. Jesus died for you. 
Accept Jesus and you have salvation. I mean, that's kind of it. You're separated from God. Jesus died for you to, to, to redeem that. And, and so go and sin no more. And it's like, well, what does that mean? There's so much more to it. And I'm sorry, this is the role of the Jews in the Gentiles with the, in, the, in the kingdom of God. In, in, in simplest terms, the essence of the gospel is repent and be born again. That's valid, but it's only a starting place. That's what's necessary to become grafted in. But after you become grafted in, then you begin to learn. We've said this here, you can't have the Torah without the gospel. You can't have the gospel without the Torah. They're inextricably linked. It's time the Jews, I believe it's time that Jews who know Yeshua step up and become the elder brother, the firstborn, leading the family of God. We begin with the gospel, and we begin with Judah binding themselves to the Gentiles in the same way that the Gentiles are to bind themselves to the Jews, right? Because that's what we see in Scripture. We see Judah binding himself to Benjamin, and later we see Benjamin binding himself to Judah. They are knit together. They are supposed to be together. The gospel is bound to the Torah, and the Torah is bound to the gospel. The Jews are bound to the Gentile believers, and the Gentile believers are, are bound to the Jewish believers. Let, let me tell you what I'm, where I'm going with here. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know. What are we? I only have a couple pages left. <laughs> do, I, do I still have you? <laughs> um, let me try to, to say this this way. This is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a reformation. I think we need another reformation. I know a lot of people don't like that phrase because it's a very Christian for, uh, word, the reformation. And yes, there was a lot of anti-Semitism that was in and through and came out of the Reformation. I get that. A Reformation is a reshuffling of the kingdom of God to bring order and truth. We have things out of balance right now. There was a, resh there was a Reformation that was needed because Joseph wasn't to be the Bechor. He was in a position of prominence. He was in a position of the Mashiach, but it wasn't meant to be that way. There needed to be a Reformation that Judah step up and become the Bechor, and that's exactly what happened. Okay, we need a reformation in the kingdom of God, and the reformation looks like this. The Jewish believer recognizes their role as the elder brother in the kingdom of God, period. And the Jews, greater community of Jews, need to recognize that Yeshua is Yeshua HaMashiach, Ben Elohim Ben David. He's, he's the son of, son, son of God and, and, and son of David. He's, he is the Mashiach, and the Jews need to recognize that. The Gentiles, though, in this Reformation, need to recognize that the Jew is the elder brother, and they need to put themselves in proper alignment in the kingdom of God. There is order in the kingdom of God. We have the example of the Judeo-Christian nation. We have the example of this grand experiment of this nation, which, without a Reformation, will, will not proceed. Um, we have the example of Jonah, the Jewish prophet sent to Nineveh. They were allowed to be grafted in to salvation by their repentance and their atonement of, and the atonement of Adonai, but they turned on Israel in about 40 years. The experience of Israel at the hands of Assyria is comparable and parallel to the experience of the Jews at the hand of the Western Gentile church through the Middle Ages and even into the Reformation and beyond. I'm speaking of the persecutions of the Jews at the hand of the Gentiles. So we have to acknowledge a couple of these broken paradigms and we have to be prepared to reset 
this. So why am I talking about all this? Why do I revisit this topic again? Because Beth Yeshua, Messianic Synagogue, what we are and who we are, we are a prophetic expression of that completed reformation. We are here in this congregation practicing what we believe to be the paradigm, the model, the truth of this, that the Jew is the elder brother in the kingdom of God and the Gentiles folding themselves into the Jew to learn from Moses the same way they did in Acts, the same way they did at the Council of Acts. They're going to be in synagogue every week. Every week you will come in here, and what do we do every week? We learn from Moses every single week. That's what they said to do in Acts. Go into the synagogues and learn from Moses every week. What is it that we teach you from Moses every week? It is the salvation of Yeshua. That's what we do here as Beth Yeshua. That's why we will continue to be who we are. That's why we are an unapologetic messianic synagogue and we haven't become a congregation or a community. There's nothing wrong with people who call their congregations congregations and communities. We are a messianic synagogue because we are placing ourselves under the Jewish paradigm. And that's what will remain, at least until Adonai tells us to do something else, which he has not done. So this is what I'm presenting to you as this grand adventure. And, and yes, we're revisiting this in a time of great turmoil and instability in our nation. Why are we talking about this? Why aren't we talking about politics or, or stuff in our, our world? But, but this is who we are. This is why we do what we do. This is what we believe. I'm sorry to have left it hanging like that, but... <laughs>